Our reading today is out of Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and he placed him up on a pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. The word of the Lord. Oh, there we go. It's on. It's uh, good to see you. Good to be here. My name is David. For those of you who do not know me, there's a few faces that have changed since I was here last. Um, the, the temptation of Jesus this week, we look at this passage, and it's a really, really important passage as we look at what temptation is in our life. Now, for some reason, your pastor, Caleb, thought, who would be good to teach on temptation? And here I am, back in Brooklyn, (laughs) tempted by that very fact. Um, But here we go. I was in, uh, in high school when I did a hike up a mountain in Cape Town called Table Mountain. Anybody been up Table Mountain in Cape Town? Yes! Yes! Three! Four! We just on a whim decided let's go up. And so we went and we did not understand that there were these paths of gradients rated from one to five based on how difficult the path was going up. And by the time we got about halfway up, we realized this is getting tougher than we thought it would be because the most easy option, level zero, is getting in the cable car and just going up without walking. (laughs) Woo! And... As it got really, really trying, these, this group of people that were just a little ahead of us stopped and waited for us. By the time we caught up to them, they said, do you know what you're doing? Because they had chosen, I think it was a level four path up the mountain, which was just one short of actually needing ropes and equipment to get up there. It was the toughest walk you can do without the 
very sophisticated equipment that you need from Brooklyn Boulders. And so as we did that, uh, we did not realize this, but if they had not stopped and helped us and we just followed the path that we had stumbled upon, um, we would have been in some serious trouble. We would have either had to turn back, which I can't imagine a 16-year-old self wanting to do that, um, or we would have just carried on and thought, man, we're either on the wrong path, try to find our own path forward. And as we look at this text, I want us to understand something of the options that our culture puts in front of us. The options are basically the fact that we now believe that any choice we make, any pathway that we can craft or find for ourselves can be rated in in ways that are better or worse. And temptation, if we truly understand it, is not the temptation towards a lesser option that might not be as exhilarating or as thrilling as the other ones. But temptation is, instead of the act of luring us into little sins or uh, the choice between many paths, it is the subtle seduction towards the insubordination of the Father's authority and the complete rejection of His love. And what that means is that this is, this is a really, really important topic as we look at what Jesus went through, that this is not just one of many paths, but the, the author of Scripture, God himself through his Spirit, is painting a picture by which if we choose to follow other temptations, lesser things, it is not just going to be a lesser exhilarating experience. It actually leads towards destruction and death. And in our world, we don't have the kind of constructs to help us make sense of that. So we're going to look at four things. One, why nobody is immune to temptations around us. Two, why we in our generation are particularly more at risk and why we cannot overcome temptations. We're going to look at how Jesus dealt with it in the passage. And then lastly, we are going to see why there's hope for us yet, why we can overcome. So let's start with the first one. No one is immune. Every person here and in the world is being tempted because at the heart of every single temptation is the undermining and the replacing of the Father's role in our lives. Dr. Russell Moore says this, you will be tempted exactly as Jesus was because Jesus was being tempted exactly as we are still. You will be tempted with consumption, with security, and with status. You will be tempted to provide for yourself, to protect yourself, and to exalt yourself. At the core of these three is a common impulse to cast off the fatherhood of God. Now, if temptation, if it is this premise that it is an attack on the father, Father's sovereign place in our life, then it also follows that if the Father did not love us and did not want the best for us, there would be no need for us to be tempted away from that. There would be no need for us to be distracted from the very best place that we were created for in the love of the Father. And so that is a very, very encouraging thing, though it is also disheartening knowing that every single one of us daily will face temptations to rob us of that which God has for us. It is encouraging because it means 
that we are creatures that were designed to experience the Father's love. That we are creatures who were designed to experience that day after day after day and that the temptation towards any other satisfying affections and desires is to take us away from the Father's love. Here's the reason I think why our generation is particularly at risk. Now, I know what that sounds like. It sounds like every other generation that stops and says, everything in our generation sucks. It was so good in the old days. But hear me out. One, we've created a perfect storm in our culture that makes us extremely susceptible towards the doubt of the Father's love and towards pursuing our own paths. The hyper-real world has been defined as radical individualism, rampant consumerism, and rapid technological advances. You can order your food right now and have it by the front door as soon as the sermon is done. You can have anything you want at the push of a button. It is all about not just questioning what our desires are and our affections are. It's actually, that has just been assumed. Now it's about what's the easiest way to satisfy them. And there are many, many options. That's just talking about food. Not even talking about pornography that is now accessible as it has never been before in history. And take every other desire and affection and it works out the same way. We don't question the appetite anymore. We now only question the pathway to please that particular appetite. The second is this. The second part of the perfect storm is that we live in a Satanless world and often by a Satanless gospel. It is really, really hard to convince our skeptical world that there is a thing, a person, a being called the devil. No, that was just a methodology to help children understand or stay away from doing bad things. We don't quite understand that there is someone or something that is trying to rob us of the joy and, and undermine the very sovereignty of the Father. And because of that, we completely underestimate our susceptibility towards the power of temptation. We expect, in, when we do expect that there is a satanic force or satanic person, uh, we, we expect him to have horns and a pitchfork. We expect it to be obvious. We expect it to be clear. And we often, as a, as a full confession, put that kind of evil upon a person an actual physical person, be it a political figure or an authority figure in your life in the past or an experience that you have in the past or a kind of people group in the past. We put evil upon them way before we put it upon this person that is not so, not so obvious seeking to destroy, to kill, and to rob us of what God has for us. We expect these things to be dramatic, temptations to be dramatic and obvious. We expect that temptation to come with a tattoo that says 666 on our forehead or on our right arm.
Instead, he becomes very subtle and he turns the very good things that are good things into the things that we make ultimate things. C.S. Lewis says, indeed, it's the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Scripture warns us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light, that it is not as obvious as we seem to think it is, but that he is like a roaring lion seeking to kill, to destroy, to rob. The difference is, Unless it's very obvious that he's there and he's trying to kill, unless there is a chainsaw or a knife or a gun in his hand, we don't put the pieces together so easily. We don't necessarily say, this promotion that gives me everything I came to the city for, is that potentially a temptation towards trusting not in God anymore? That's a little more subtle. That's a little more nuanced. And we don't often ask those questions. James 1 speaks of it in this way. James says that it starts with desire. It gives birth to sin. But it ends in death. But that moment when temptation comes, whether it is to satisfy a a desire for approval or a, a particular ambition that you have or an appetite that you feel like needs to be satisfied, we do not think, that's death, I'm not going there. We just entertain the possibilities of what life this desire promises us. It's as subtle as believing a half-truth about the Father's love for you or about your own identity. The third thing about the perfect storm is the fact that it is not about us. Temptation is as, <clears throat> is as strong as, as it is because it is not primarily an assault on us. It is an undermining of the reign and the authority of God. This is what Russell Moore says. Temptation is so strong in our lives precisely because it is not about us. T- it's an assault by the demonic powers on the rival empire of the Messiah. That is why conversion to Christ doesn't diminish the power of temptation, as we often assume it would, but actually, counterintuitively, it ratchets it up. If you bear the spirit of the one, the powers rage against. They will seek to tear down the image of the crucified Christ. The last thing about the perfect storm, probably the most significant one, is that we do not have within us what it takes to overcome the temptations that come our way. That's the good news. Paul says it like this in Romans. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want, I agree that the law is good, but in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want, that is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but the sin that dwells within me. 
That's hard to hear. It's hard to hear that we cannot live the way we're supposed to. And the only way to truly prove that is to take something and go and try. To take the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Go today when you leave and try. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You love yourself by caring for yourself, by paying your bills, by getting a roof over your head, by warming yourself. You love yourself by feeding yourself, by caring for yourself, by making sure you're healthy. Walk out the door and see how many people you can do that to by the end of the day. And see if you can truly love someone else the way you love yourself. Or if there is a moment that you realize, man, this is impossible. Love the Lord with all your heart. Let's start there. Walk out the door and just spend this afternoon going after that. It is very obvious that we will all fall short. And we have to come to the realization that Paul comes to where he says, I want to, but I actually can't. And by the law, if I miss one part of the law, I miss the whole thing. I break the whole law. And so when Jesus says, he comes in and he says, oh, it's not, it's not just about whether you, wanna, whether you kill someone. It's whether you want to kill someone. Anybody who's married (laughs) will know you've already failed. Anyone who's got kids who in the middle of the night, you're like, I cannot stay awake another minute. And you start to see the evil inside that creeps in so quickly. We cannot. You and I cannot do what is right. So as we look at the nature of temptation and how Jesus goes through it, this is what happens. One, it begins in Genesis. Genesis, the temptation that Adam and Eve faces is exactly the same as what Jesus faces. It is a temptation to self-satisfy instead of trusting God. It is a temptation to defend themselves when accused, to to curate and protect their own future. And it is a a temptation to to self-protect, to cover themselves, to take their shame and their nakedness as well. And it mirrors the very temptations that Satan brings to Jesus in this particular passage. Then the Israelites in the wilderness, when they are going through the desert, face the very same thing. They are being given manna from heaven every day. They have walked through a sea that opened up for them. They have seen the fire of God, the pillar of God, and the cloud by the day. They've seen his miraculous provision, and yet they fall to them to the temptation that they have a better plan of satisfying their own needs. They say in Numbers 11, just Take us back to Egypt where the fish is free. That's the words they use. Because they're sick of the manna that they're getting every day. This bread-like substance that comes every morning like like the dew in the morning. They can gather it and they can eat it. 
But they only have enough for the day because they have to trust the ne- that the next day they would be. They can't gather it up. If they gather it up, they're protecting their own future, the temptation to cur- curate our own future. They gather up the manna and put it in jars. By the next day, it's all perished. It's all bad. And so they're forced to trust God day after day after day for 40 years in the wilderness. And they say this to Moses. They say, take us back. The fish is free. The fish we received was free. They started craving the word of God says. They started having these appetites and desires. And what happens in the end of the day is they don't realize that their their appetites, their desires, their temptations as they, they lived in that slavery completely reordered the way they thought about reality. Because they say the fish is free, but it cost that fish cost them everything. They were slaves. They had no freedom. They got free fish, but they had no freedom. And all of a sudden, they think that that is the free life that was promised to them, the better life, and they're still craving after that. And the end of the story is God sends quail, and he, he in this like mass conspiracy theory, what happened? These quail was, was brought by the wind. They died. They fell to the ground, and they could gather as much as they want. And their cravings had them eat quail because now they had this quail instead of the manna. They got so sick that some died from indulging in their appetites in the wilderness. And the place that they, where that happened, the graves, it's, it's called this. It's called the place where their cravings overcame them. And here Jesus is in the desert and he's facing the same things. Now, if you have fasted at all from food, for a long period of time, you would understand. We're in, the, we're in Lent right now. And Lent is the season where we are, um, are letting go of some of the luxuries in our lives to awaken the, our appetite for God, to remind us that we need God more than we need anything else. The longest that I have ever gone without food was seven days, just water. No juice land, no, no kale smoothies, just water. I say that not as a boast because, man, I could not boast in that. And I, humanly, please don't do that. Because by day three or day four, your mind drives you wild. You look at a piece of carb and you go, that is manna from heaven right now. God has answered my cry. I think he's saying I should eat. I promise you, my soul says that. Oh, I think God is saying I should eat. By day three or four, I pr- my mind starts to say this every single time. I go, I think I've made this fast into an idol. I think I should give it up because I've made it into the very thing I'm trusting in. Now, that might be true, but every single time I do it, that happens. Jesus was doing that for 40 days, just water in the desert. And he had come to a point where Satan comes and at his weakest moment, desperate, his body is desperately in need of sustenance. 
His appetites, his approval, his desires are so heightened. And in that moment of vulnerability, Satan comes. Great principle. He will always come where you are most vulnerable. Sometimes you are most vulnerable, you and I, where we are most strong. Because we think we're not vulnerable. That's what Corinthians tells us. 1 Corinthians 10. So Jesus goes in, and these are the temptations he faces. To provide for himself, to protect himself from falling down, and to promote himself. And those are the three things that God as Father takes upon himself for us. Those three things are three of the most important things that dads do for their children. It is our job as a dad to provide that which our children need. It is our job to protect them. And it is our job to craft out a future for them by the way we raise them up and train them. So these temptations that Jesus faced were not just for little sins. They were temptations that seek to master him, to become Lord over him, to take the Father's place. Sin is slavery. All sin is slavery. And that's the great deception in our modern world. Is we truly believe that we are most free when we are free to pursue our appetites and our desires. But we very rarely consider that our appetites and our desires themselves have been shaped radically by certain forces. By wounds of the past by experiences, by our culture that teaches us what we like and what we shouldn't like. We are products. Our desires have been shaped. And in a sermon taught here at the beginning of the series by Caleb, he reminded us that our desires cannot necessarily be trusted. And yet, we have crafted our world around the freedom to pursue our desires. And we don't realize how that in itself is enslaving us to our desires and to everything that has shaped our desires to the point where we are right now. In New York, we're not slaves to the lull of the suburban comfort life. We are slaves to our ambitions, to our appetites, and to seeking the approval, even self-approval. Some of us don't really care what other people think, but we really care about, we th- about what we think about ourselves. It matters. It's the most important thing that we're after. Again, Russell Moore says, there is no upper limit of fame that can ever satisfy those who crave it. There is no monetary figure at which those who long for financial success will ever be willing to say, that's enough. There is no orgasm that feels good enough to last you a lifetime. As temptation moves onward and inward, you become insatiable for sin. You're caught. You're enslaved. And Jesus' victory in this particular point was the victory that affirmed the Father's rightful place to be worshipped. Temptation does three things. It questions our identity, it confuses our desires, and it contests our future. And undermining all of those is the question of, is God really a good dad? 
Is he really seeking our good? It questions our identity, it confuses, confuses our desires, and it contests our future. And this is how Jesus overcame. One, he went into the temptation affirmed by the Father. Before he went into the, 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 the temptation, before the Spirit led him into the wilderness, he had this encounter of being baptized and the Father's voice speaking over him, you are my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. And then when Satan comes and tests him, the testing comes based on that very fact, the under, underlying principle, if you are the son of God. Jesus overcame by the very identity that the Father spoke over him. And that was the identity that was uh, doubted or the doubt was trying to cause. Secondly, he was led by the Spirit. There was an understanding that he is with the power of God in the desert place. He was not alone. He was not there by accident, but he was there led by the Spirit. And then thirdly, he overcame by understanding that there is the Word of God that he could speak. An ultimate truth that overcomes his current doubts and realities. He understood that his fleshly weakness was not sufficient to rely upon. And that's what Paul says in Romans. I cannot rely upon my flesh. It deceives me. And so Jesus doesn't rely upon his flesh. He goes to that which he can rely on. The Father's affirmation, the Spirit's power, and the word of truth. The Father has already approved Jesus. He did not need to overcome these temptations to receive the Father's love. The Father has already confessed his love over Jesus. He was not there by mistake, but the Spirit led him. And he was leaning on the word that he could trust in. Which leads us to how we can overcome the temptations towards these things. Firstly, we have the warning. We have the scriptures. We have the very text that Jesus has. 1 Corinthians 10 says this. Now the things occur, these things occurred as examples for us. So that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not become idolaters as some of them did. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And the 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test. These are mirrors of Genesis, mirrors of the Israelites in Egypt and mirrors of Jesus in the desert as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. And do not complain, as some of them did, as they were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them to serve as an example, and they were written down to instruct us. We have these instructions, these exhortations, on whom the ends of the ages have come. So if you think you are standing Watch out that you do not fall. No testing has overtaken you that is not common common to everyone. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. You're not alone. One of the greatest, greatest, greatest schemes of our enemy is to isolate us. Is to make us think, I am alone in this temptation. You're not 
If there is a temptation towards an appetite that you know could destroy you, could destroy your marriage, could destroy your family, hear very carefully right now, you are not alone in that. Speak about it. Be honest about it. Go to someone who will trust and who will fight with you for your future. You are not alone. One, you have the text. Two, you have a community around you who is willing and very gracious to walk with you in temptation and in sin. Because they all sin. They all know that we are all susceptible to this. Secondly, we already have the Father's affirmation. Romans 8, as Paul speaks about the struggle, he says, so then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. We have the Spirit of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery, to, uh, to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. We cry, Abba, Father. That is the very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs and heirs of a God and joint heirs with Christ, in fact, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. In Genesis, Adam and Eve hid from God. In the wilderness, the Israelites were terrified of the voice of God, so they sent someone in their place to go and hear the thundering voice of God. When Jesus came to this point of his life, he stood under the pleasure and the voice of God, and he received and heard the affirmation of the Father. And because he did that, we have the affirmation of the Father too. That's what this text means. We can cry out to a dad who loves us. We do not have to hide in fear. The Father calls us sons and daughters. And if you have an understanding of a Father that you can access at any time and receive His joy, receive His love, then you have a right understanding of the Father. But we avoid that. Fathers provide. Fathers protect. Fathers secure a future for their children. But the enemy wants to isolate, and secondly, the enemy wants to have us doubt the Father's love for us. Thirdly, we overcome because we have an advocate in Christ. Hebrews 4, which speaks about this very temptation, says, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, let's approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We have access to everything through Christ that we need for life and godliness. This is the same grace that Paul says teaches us to say no to ungodliness. This grace that Jesus poured out actually empowers us to say no. It gives us the ability that we didn't have before. Anyone stuck in a temptation that you just feel like you're going, I cannot get out of it. I have tried. And Paul's saying, you're right, you don't have what it takes. 
But if we approach the throne of grace through Christ, we get the very grace we need to say no. He was tempted to provide for himself, and he didn't. He was tempted to save himself, and he didn't. He was tempted to take his life into, in his future into his own hands, and he did it. He committed no sin when they heaped abuse on him, 1 Peter 2 says. He committed no sin when they abused him and heaped insults on him, but he entrusted his life into the hands of the Father and gave the Father the rightful place in the face of temptation. The cross presents us with all the power we need to overcome, and it removes every excuse we have not to do it. Are you tempted to create your own, to curate your own reputation? In a city where reputation matters, are you tempted to curate that? Are you tempted to make yourself look better? Are you tempted to make yourself seem stronger than you are? Are you tempted to make yourself seem weaker so you can receive empathy or sympathy at times? We do this in marriages, in relationships. We craft our own reputation, our own image in order to get what we think we need from people. Jesus says, no, trust the Father. Are you tempted to satisfy your greatest felt needs? Whether that's needs for physical sustenance, whether that's needs for, need for approval, whether that's need for, for, uh, for self-approval, trust in God. Are you tempted to craft your own future, to make it, to make it happen? Entrust your life into the Father's hands. So temptation is not the act of luring us into little sins, but the subtle seduction towards the insubordination of the Father's authority. And God wants to restore that. So as you consider this, we're going to take a moment to just reflect on this and just to ask God, where is it that temptation is aiming at me? Use this framework. Temptation is trying to do two things. It's trying to question our identity, it's trying to confuse our desires, and it's trying to contest our futures. And the Father restores that through Christ by doing this, reaffirming our identity as sons and daughters, rightly ordering our desires, and reimagining a future that is the best future for us, and in truth, the only future for us in the hands of of the Father by Jesus Christ. I will pray and then take some minutes just to consider these things and consider where temptation or where our enemy Satan is trying to lure you into question these particular things. Father, we come to you knowing that our identity is always under attack, that we are always susceptible to believing something else about ourselves, that our desires are always trying to lie to us, that they are being affected by other things, and that our future is always being promised to us by other things, and that you hold our future in your hands, the best possible future that you have. I ask that you come and speak to us, identify in us, put your finger upon those things that would help us Reorder our desires, reimagine our future, and reaffirm our identity as sons and daughters. Come and speak to us now, we pray. Amen.